Will you please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And it says First Peter on the screen, but I'll explain why in just a bit. We want everybody to be able to look on at Galatians 5, though, as we consider that passage. So the guys have some Bibles. And as they make their way down the aisle, if you need a Bible, then get one, get their attention, and they will get one to you. Those Bibles are marked at Galatians 5, so you won't need to fumble around to find it. And feel free to keep that Bible as our gift. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Well, if I am asked, is your objective for your church to grow? My answer is both no and yes. If by church growth we mean numerical growth, then that's not our objective. In fact, I say in our newcomer's orientation that we do several times a year, a four-week class for those who would like to know more about our church, I say in that orientation that our objective is church health, not church growth in the numerical sense. But there's another sense in which my objective is for the church to grow. And that's because properly understood, the word church refers to the people who comprise it. And so if we ask whether we want the church to grow, it's really the same as asking, do you want the people to grow? And so is your objective for your church to grow? No and yes. Yes, I desperately want to see our church grow in Christ-likeness. And of course, I'm part of the church. And so when I say I want the church to grow, I include myself in that I am not detached from the composition of the church in some kind of priestly class. I need that growth too, and every day. And so, because that is indeed a God-honoring objective, that we as God's people who comprise His church grow, then I ask you, dear friends, as I ask myself, are you growing in your walk with the Lord? For far too many of us, we'd have to say there's no obvious evidence of that in our lives. The truth is, we easily, we all easily get stuck in ruts, and we simply go through the routine, and as a result, we do not experience real growth in a sustained way over the long haul. Now, what are some of the reasons behind that? Why is that? Well, it is in large part because we have been taught, and many of us have caught on to, a superficial and truncated approach to spiritual growth. Superficial and truncated. It's superficial in that it does not get to the root of our sin struggles. So we engage in what one author calls fruit stapling in our lives. We want to see good fruit on the tree that is our lives, And so we staple perfectly good apples, unfortunately, to a tree that's diseased. If you don't get to the root, then putting good apples on a diseased tree is not going to help. And that's the superficial approach that many of us take toward spiritual growth. And our approach is not only superficial, but it's truncated in that we're satisfied with enough changes just to make life better for us. And so if I can see some changes in my life that are causing me some difficulties in my relationships and so on, 
then I'll be happy with that. If I can learn to control my temper, if I can learn something about how to better handle my finances, then we're satisfied. It's truncated in that we don't want to go further because our objective is not really Christ-likeness, but rather an easier life. And as a result, you can have people who have professed a relationship with the Lord for decades, but who have not tangibly grown in years. And so, rather than 10 years of growth, if one has been saved, come to the Lord 10 years ago, rather than 10 years of growth or 20 or 30, it's possible to have really the equivalent of one year of growth that we ride for 10 or 20 or 30 years. One year of growth 10 times, 20 times, 30 times. If we're going to grow, then we have to, friends, we have to want Christ-likeness. And if we're to grow over the long haul, then we must go beyond surface, fruit-stapling approaches. We're going to have to get to the root. And we're going to have to get to the root on a regular basis. Now, I assume that most everybody in this room are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus and therefore are indwelled by His Spirit and therefore want to grow. And so assuming we want to grow, then one reason we do not is because we fail to remember a biblical principle that is absolutely crucial, and that is this, that the internal always precedes the external. If we're going to grow and we're going to have true growth, deep growth, beyond the superficial, that is long-lasting, we've got to remember internal always precedes external. When we, for example, use our mouths in saying something that's wrong or sinful or hurtful, we sometimes respond, that just slipped. You see, but the Bible's approach would be to say, it slipped because it was there. It came out because it was already in. And so Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The internal precedes the external. And when Jesus says out of the overflow of the heart, he's using heart the way the Bible often does, not for the physical organ that pumps blood, but rather it refers to the control center of the individual. And so out of this part of me that I really am comes the way I talk, the things I think, and the way I act. And the Bible teaches that our hearts are always active in every thought and attitude and word and deed. And so Scripture says things like James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now I mentioned we had the, on the screen a series in First Peter, yet I've asked you to turn to Galatians 5. We've been in a series in 1 Peter for the last several weeks, and the title of that series is Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. And last week from 1 Peter, we saw 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, where Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. 
Now, if you were with us last week, as we looked at that passage, you may remember I made the point that sinful desires are not desires for what is sinful. So when it says abstain from sinful desires, I pointed out last week that we think it's a desire for something or someone that I'm looking at that is prohibited, forbidden, sinful. And because I've got a desire for that, that falls under this category of the things I should abstain from. But since I don't have any of that in my mind and my heart right now, then this must not be talking to me. But when the Bible talks about sinful desires, it doesn't make a one-to-one correspondence between this particular desire and that particular person or thing. But as we pointed out last week, sinful desires are rather redirected, misdirected desires in general. They are desires that instead of being focused first on God and then on others are focused primarily, often exclusively, on me. And it is these selfish and self-centered desires that then give rise to all kinds of words and thoughts and actions and attitudes. And I've asked you to turn to Galatians 5 for this reason. Because that idea of sinful desires being the animating, the motivating force within us, either godly or sinful desires, struck a nerve with a number of you. I had a number of of comments about having not thought about sinful desires in that way. And I want to take today then as kind of an excursus And I want to look at what I say at the top of your outline that was inserted in your program. We call this the anatomy of desire. To delve in a bit deeper into what does spiritual desire look like, what does sinful desire look like, and to do so from Galatians chapter 5. And so I call your attention to the outline. Before we proceed, then, looking at what it says about these desires and how they motivate us, let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we need your aid at all times. And as we come to your word, Lord, to look at what it says about our hearts and about our desires, we bring our hearts and our desires to it. Our hearts are active right now in this sacred moment. And the flesh, the sinful nature, is seeking to crust over the the work of the Spirit and defeat the work of the Spirit in this moment. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us. We ask your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and to focus our minds upon your truth and to be changed by it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. The flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. I say in your outline that those two verses are telling us, first of all, that we do what we want most. We do what we want, what we desire most. So in any given moment... When I am faced with making a statement, thinking a thought, performing an action, I am going to say, I'm going to think, I'm going to do 
what it is that I want most in that moment. And that is going to be determined by whether or not, as verse 17 tells us, we've got a battle between two kinds of desires, the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh. And which of those I want most in that moment will determine what I do. We do what we want most. Verse 17 says, the flesh desires. The passage that we looked at last week, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, says abstain from sinful desires. And when it says sinful desires in 1 Peter 2.11, that word for, for sinful is the word sarks. It's translated flesh in Galatians 5. And so you could insert next to the word flesh, sinful desires are contrary to the desires of the Spirit. That's what Paul is communicating. When he says flesh, he's not talking about our physical bodies, but rather it's used in an ethical sense. Some theologians call it the ethical flesh. It's referring to our, our sin nature. So, verse 17, the sin nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. Flesh is sin nature. And then when it says desires, same word in Galatians 5.17 as in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Same Greek word, epithumia. And it's a word that means literally this. Not just desires, but with that prefix, epi, it's, it's over desires. I really desire. I over desire. I desire this person or this thing too much. Now, when it says then in Galatians 5.17, the flesh over-desires what is contrary to what the Spirit desires. When it says that then, since these are over-desires, please notice they are not necessarily desires for something evil. They may be desires for something good that I want overly too much. How do I know if I want them too much? It is when I am willing to sin in order to get them or in the absence of having them. And so, for instance, I may want, I may desire security, peace of mind. That's a good desire. There's nothing evil about that. But I can over-desire security and peace of mind so that I'm willing to sin in order to get that. My life is consumed by having financial stability, and my life is run by accumulating enough money to make sure, at least in my mind, that there's no possibility that there could ever be any financial failure for me or for my family. And my life's consumed with that, rather than consumed with a zeal for the glory of God through the mission that He has given to His church. That's an over-desire for a good thing that has now become idolatrous. I might want peace. Peace in a relationship that I have. That's a good thing. But I can want peace too much. How? Because someone may be sinning in what they do, but I want peace so much that I'm willing to disobey God who tells me that Friends help friends become Christ-like. That friends are willing, because they love each other, to confront one another with the truth. 
But I want peace more than I want truth. I need that person more than I love that person. And so that desire for peace and that relationship has become an over-desire. Security, peace, comfort, respect, whatever it may be. So these desires are over-desires, things that we want too much. And I say in your outline, we have, according to verse 17, competing desires. Competing desires. The flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And it's then, on the basis of the sinful desire or desires of the Spirit, whichever mean more to me in the moment, whichever are the most to me at that time of thought or word or deed, it is after that desire that then it works outward. And that's why it's after verses 17 and 18 that you get to verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature, the acts of the flesh are obvious, and then we'll see that list in a bit. Or then you come to verse 22 of Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is this. But at the root of the fruit of the Spirit or the acts of the sinful nature are the desires of the flesh or the desires of the Spirit. We have competing desires. Now that can sound very dismaying for us. We gather to worship the Lord on the Lord's day as those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus have a relationship with Him. And yet we read in Scripture that we have these competing desires. And if you're left with that, if you only read that, then you can come to think that these desires are equal. I have my sinful desires. I have my spiritual desires. And all things being equal, the sinful desires could just keep winning all the time. But the Bible teaches otherwise. That the spirit is greater than the flesh that the power of sin has been broken in the life of the believer. And that's why verse 17 says, the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit, spirit contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. That last part of verse 17 says what I say in your outline. It's telling us that we as believers have an ultimate desire. That what we ultimately want to do is to please God. Even though we have this battle going on, and there are certainly times in our lives, many times, too many times, where the battle is won because I want most what the sinful nature desires rather than the Spirit. But if I'm truly a believer and I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me, my ultimate desire in the midst of our struggle is to please God and to live according to the Spirit. In fact, in the midst of our struggle, it is a struggle precisely because we want something else. You all hear that? You see, if it were not for the presence of the Holy Spirit in the believer, it wouldn't be a struggle. For the person outside of Christ, there's not the struggle. The struggle is there because we want to please Him. And so the last part of verse 17 of Galatians 5 is similar to Romans chapter 7, verse 22. Romans 7 and verse 22. You all remember what the Apostle Paul said there? Paul wrote this passage. He also wrote Romans 7. And he says, 
the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. But then he goes on to say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying here, yes, there is this battle between the sin nature and our renewed spiritual nature. But we have an ultimate desire, if we belong to him, to please the Lord. And this should encourage us then, friends, as we engage in this battle of desires. So we do what we want most. We have competing desires. But thanks be to God, we have an ultimate desire to please him and, uh, and live according to the Spirit. And thirdly, I say in your outline, we have submissive desires submissive desire. I struggled with what the word should be there. Why submissive? What does it mean? Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So how does the law just sort of show up here? We're talking about the sin nature. We're talking about the Spirit. We're talking about the struggle between the two and their desires. And then this should encourage you. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. What does that mean? Well, throughout Paul's four and a half chapters of discussion to the Galatian Christians, he's been making the case that those who live by the law are people who seek to justify themselves by what they do. And he is saying here, if we have the Spirit, we are no longer people who seek to make our own way with God. We are no longer people who seek to recommend ourselves to God by virtue of what we do. And in the case of the Galatians, the standard of that was the law. And Paul says, we have been through the gospel given the Spirit. And the Spirit is God's way of transforming us into the image of Christ. The Spirit gives us the power to be Christ-like that the law could never give. And so unlike some to whom he was writing in Galatia, who sought to establish their own righteousness by what they do. Those who have the Spirit submit to the truth of the gospel of God's grace that he has provided and he alone all that is necessary for us to have a relationship with him and for us to grow in that relationship. Many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards preached probably the most famous sermon on American soil called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But he had perhaps a more important sermon as far as American church history is concerned. It was a message he preached in 1731 in Boston, and the title was God Glorified in Man's Dependence. And the opening paragraph said, there's an absolute and universal dependence of the redeemed on God. The nature and contrivance of our redemption is such that the redeemed are in everything directly, immediately, and entirely dependent upon God. They are dependent on Him for all and are dependent on Him in every way. That's what Paul's reminding us. He's saying that's that's actually good news. (laughs) Because you're dependent upon an active and living God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells you and who is doing battle within you against fleshly sinful desires. And so it's a word of encouragement to us. We have submissive desires, submissive to the power of the Spirit, not trying 
to create our own righteousness. Now, there are other passages in the Bible that deal with this anatomy of desire. And I'd like to remind you of a very important one from James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we have on the screen. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The word for desire, same word as in 1 Peter 2.11, same as in Galatians 5.17. In James 1.14, we're tempted when we're dragged away by our own evil desire and enticed. Now, let me point something important out. It says evil desire in the NIV. The Greek text does not have the word evil. And in fact, some of you have other versions. If you have the New American Standard Version, it uses the word instead of desire, it uses the word lust. That's not a sexual context. That's just over-desire, intense desire. But it doesn't say evil. The English Standard Version simply says that we are dragged away by our own desire because that's what the text says. So you can strike the word evil. So it is our desire. And desire, in turn, brings forth thoughts and words and actions because notice what the passage says. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when full-grown, gives birth to death. And so, what is that What is that? like. We have these desires that we carry around with us, and according to James chapter 1, those desires await a catalyst, some event, something about which we are acting or reacting, and we will either act or react in a spiritual or a sinful way depending on the desires of our hearts. And so what does that mean for us practically? Let me just park here for a few moments and have each of us think about what this anatomy of desire means. Desire precedes thought and word and action. Internal precedes external. It means that every moment you're carrying around these desires. I'm carrying around these desires. And they await a provocation. Or they await an opportunity to be fulfilled. And you may walk around, you and I may walk around and not have had an opportunity or a provocation for a while. And therefore, we think we're doing well. Therefore, we assume we're spiritual because I haven't said or thought or did something that was blatantly sinful. But if I am not cultivating the Spirit, then it simply awaits an opportunity or a provocation. And when that opportunity, that provocation comes, and I react with words or actions, I might even be surprised. That's not like me. Oh, yes, it is. As a matter of fact, it was you. And it was you, it was me, because we harbored those latent desires. This is why the Bible warns. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The Bible is counseling a humility that says, my heart is sinful. My heart is active. I carry around within me its desires everywhere I go. And it awaits a provocation or an opportunity. I said last week that sinful desires, redirected, misdirected desires, away from God, away from others and towards self, they are sin waiting to happen. And so it looks out of character for us. And here's the danger, dear friends. We will then assume it is out of character and we'll dismiss it. That was an aberration. That's not me. So if you're a teenager and you're cultivating a hedonistic mindset, you all know what I mean? I'm a teenager, my life's about having fun. The more you cultivate that desire, I'm about fun. I'm a young person. You know, I don't want to be old like the pastor and have life pass me by. So in my heart and in my mind, I'm cultivating this hedonistic heart, this hedonistic desire. But it doesn't cause any harm until... There's an opportunity or a provocation. And then we will see what we desire most. Do we desire to obey God by obeying, yes, obeying our parents? Or will we find ways to get what we want no matter what it takes? If it means deception, so be it. If it means stepping on other people on my way to get it, so be it. And so a teenager can be cultivating these and he or she not even realize it until the provocation or the opportunity. Or I desire to be popular. And if that means breaking a few eggs to make an omelet, meaning I've got to run over some people who used to be my friends in order for me to be more popular, when the opportunity presents itself, adults, of course, I desire, as a wife, to be cherished. Maybe a good desire. But in the absence of getting it, I may not demonstrate joy in my marriage or be willing to play the role that God has given me in my marriage, thus revealing this to be an idolatrous over-desire. I may desire to be respected as a parent by my children. And when they disobey, in anger, I may smack them in the face sinful anger, revealing because of the opportunity or provocation what was in my heart. And so we do what we want most. As Christians, we have competing desires. Thanks be to God, we have, if we belong to Him, an ultimate desire to live by the Spirit. We have submissive desire as well. We're not making it up as we go. We're resting in the righteousness that comes from Christ and the power of the Spirit. But understand that desire, whether for the Spirit or for sin, always precedes action. As Galatians 5 teaches, as 1 Peter 2.11 teaches, as James 1 teaches. 
So I say in your outline, we do what we want most. Secondly, notice, what we want most is seen in what we do. So we do what we want most. Okay, well, how do I know what I want most? (laughs) It's seen, in turn, in what I do. What I think, what I speak, and what I act upon. Verse 19 includes actions and attitudes that result from epithumia, over-desires. Tim Keller, author Tim Keller and pastor, categorizes and defines this list in verse 19, where it says the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And he categorizes these in a helpful way. He says three of them have to do with sex. In fact, the first three in verse 19, sexual immorality, that's sex outside of marriage, impurity, unnatural practices and relationships, debauchery, uncontrolled sexuality. And then there are two words in verse 20 having to do with religion, idolatry and witchcraft. Now, idolatry is sometimes used as a general term in Scripture to refer to any inordinate over-desire that we have for someone or something other than God. But when coupled with witchcraft here, it's referring to pagan religious practices. And so idolatry, because God is not enough, and so we provide an inadequate substitute. Witchcraft, faking the work of the Spirit. And then in verses 20 and 21, there are eight words that describe how the sin nature destroys relationships. Now we're getting closer for you and me. You haven't engaged in witchcraft lately. And so you say, okay, I'm off the hook. But verses 20 and 21 begin to talk about how the sin nature destroys relationship. And four of these eight words talk about destructive attitudes, selfish ambition, competitiveness, a self-seeking motive. Envy, that is coveting, desiring what others have. Jealousy, the zeal and energy that comes from a hungry ego. Hatred, meaning hostility, an adversarial attitude. So four of these eight words are about how sin destroy our attitudes that are destructive. Four of them are about the results of those attitudes in our relationships. Discord, being argumentative, seeking to pick fights. Or fits of rage, that is, outbursts of anger. Dissensions. Divisions between people, which is what rage leads to. And then factions, permanent parties, warring groups. And then last, in verse 21, there are these two words that refer to substance abuse. Drunkenness and orgies. The drunkenness obviously refers to uh, drink Orgies are not sex orgies, but drinking orgies. And so one of the works of the flesh is addiction to pleasure-creating substances and behavior. And then Paul has a warning in verse 21 to those who behave like this in a habitual way. Notice the end of verse 21. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now those who live like this, 
And you see that list, and it covers the gamut. And that list includes stuff that tempts you and tempts me, that you and I engage in. Jealousy, envy, anger, selfish ambition, right? That ought to be sobering for us. We come to church, we go through the motions, we think we are okay, and God is telling us as starkly as He can, you are not okay as long as you are indulging the attitudes and the desires of the sinful nature. And those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, does that mean I could lose my salvation and my relationship with Christ because I have a... I have a period of time where I engage these acts and attitudes of the sinful nature. The Bible teaches that if we have a relationship with Christ, that will be forever. This is habitual practice. This is the lifestyle of a person who is living according to the sin nature. We all struggle with this. That's why Paul wrote it. I struggle with these things. We all do. But if this is our habitual practice, then that warning at the end of verse 21 is for us. Now, another way to break down this list into categories is to notice that some of these sins listed in verses 19 through 21 are characteristic, now hear this, of religious people and some of non-religious people. Some of them are characteristic of religious people, selfishness, envy, jealousy, factions. Others more characteristic of non-religious people, immorality, drunkenness. And what that does is show us, friends, that God doesn't look at the categories the way we do. We church folk tend to look at what the world does and we say, look how bad that is. And God says to the church folk, I look at your hearts and I'm trying to show you how bad that is. And that's why I said last week, we often find ourselves more concerned about the sin out there than the sin in here. And God is driving us to see what's taking place in our hearts. Now, in contrast to that, verse 22, we're going to do what we want, what we desire most. And we know what we want most by what we do. Acts of the sinful nature or, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit. And again, I'm indebted to Timothy Keller for a helpful breakdown of four characteristics of these nine items in verses 22 and 23 that constitute the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Four characteristics of these nine qualities. The first one is this, if you care to jot these down. That these are things that happen gradually. Because Paul in verse 19 refers to the acts, the actions of the sinful nature, but now in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit. And the reason he refers to the fruit of the Spirit is to call into mind now an agricultural setting. And the crops grow, the fruit grows gradually. This fruit of the Spirit grows over time. And so if you are cultivating the desires of the Spirit rather than the desires of the flesh, 
You will find yourself over time in situations that you used to be in before, but now you're reacting differently. Thanks be to God. Because it grows over time. Second, this fruit is inevitable. It's gradual, but it's also inevitable. And this should be encouraging to us. That if we have God's Spirit, God's Spirit is at work, and this fruit will be produced. It's inevitable. But as I've said over the years, inevitable is not the same as automatic, meaning we're not passive in the process, we're active in the process. The third thing about this metaphor of fruit in the life of the believer is that its roots are internal. And so this fruit is, is gradual, it's inevitable, it's also internal, rooted internally. And so for us to have this fruit, it is not just turn over a new leaf, do better. Stop doing that stuff. But rather, it is for us to cultivate a relationship with the one who changes from the inside. Life comes from the root. The root is the spirit. And so the fruit stapling on the outside simply doesn't work. And so things like anger management ain't going to get it done. You know, we say anger management. I just want to... You want to manage your anger? God wants to eradicate your sinful anger. He wants to kill, mortify your sinful anger. Not manage it. Yikes. Anger management. Just put in sin management. Let's just manage my sin. So it's not too bad for everybody. And then fourthly and importantly... This list of spiritual fruit is symmetrical. Symmetrical. What's that, what's that mean? I want you to notice in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit. The word fruit is singular. In verse 19, the acts, plural, of the sinful nature. And so depending on my circumstances, depending on my my bent, my particular provocations. I may do this, I may do that. But in verse 22, the fruit singular of the Spirit is these nine things. They're symmetrical, meaning this, that the person who has the Spirit will have all of these in some measure. These are the fruit of the same Spirit. They are the singular fruit of the one and only Spirit. And the person who is indwelled by that Spirit will see these characteristics in his or her life. So it's not that, you know, I'm a loving guy, but I'm not a joyful guy. It's not, you know, I forbear, but I'm not kind. The fruit, singular fruit of the Spirit, is all of these things. Now, that's important for this reason. We may fool ourselves into thinking we have the fruit of the Spirit when, in fact, what we actually have are manifestations of our giftedness or our natural tendencies. I mean, you take a look at those nine things, and you can think of personality types that fit some of those, can't you? I mean, there are some people, their personality is they're just gentle. Right? I'm not one of them. But there are people like that. But 
does a person is a person who's gentle is that person necessarily loving do they love others enough to say hard things no their personality is such that they would never say anything hard to anyone because i want friends i want people to like me and so they see this gentleness and they mistake it for the fruit of the spirit when in fact it's just part of one's personality John said this in 1 John chapter 4. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Now, I want you to notice, it, it doesn't, John does not say, if anyone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, he's unbalanced. He says, no, he's a liar. Here's what he's saying. You can't have one without the other. So what I'm saying is, friends, do not... Do not fool yourself. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we are in step with the Spirit because our natural tendencies fit a few things on that list of nine fruit of the Spirit. That fruit should be evident in the life of all believers and be cultivated in the lives of all believers. Now, Keller goes on to helpfully define each of those. And I don't have time to go through each of the nine on that list. And so I'll go through the last point in your outline. We do what we want most. We know what we want most by what we do. And then thirdly, what we want most must be cultivated. Must be cultivated. What we want most must be cultivated. Now, how can I know what's going on in my heart? How can I know if I'm cultivating? Now, you know, one way is to <laughs> measure how you do when you're confronted with annoying people. Are you doing better when confronted with people that annoy you or worse or the same? So I've got this article. This is a fictitious article, okay? It's a humorous article about someone who's involved in a church who engages in something called face bragging. Everybody know what that term is? You're on Facebook, but you use Facebook to brag. So face bragging. Let me read some of this to you. Last week, Molly Parker posted a stunning photo of a three-tier cake with elaborate icing decorations along with the caption, a little something I made for the fam in my free time. It was so typical I forgot to be annoyed, says a friend who, like others in their church, says Molly's face bragging amounts to a constant wave of self-congratulatory posts about her life. If you want to learn patience and slowness to anger, do yourself a favor and friend Molly Parker. Friends use her posts to gauge how spiritual they're feeling that day. If I'm upset by Molly's posts, I know I need to draw closer to God, says one. If her face bragging rolls off my back, I'm good. Parker often posts family portraits with captions like, best kids ever. Mostly it's just updates through, throughout the day. There's a bunch of them here. She often, it says, posts about her husband. One photo showed a new set of earrings with the caption, he loves me so. Another post read, my wonderful hubby got a major promotion. No one deserves it more. Congratulations, honey, you rock the world. And then there's the post that became an instant classic. My hot husband is also my most cherished friend. 
One woman says, we love that one. When my husband comes home from work, I say, is that my hot husband and my most cherished friend? And he says, that must be my perfect wife. It's entertaining. Even her spiritual posts get under some people's skin. Precious time with the Lord today, she wrote recently. The next day it was blueberry scones, hot cocoa, a warm fire, and my favorite devotional, Perfect Morning. For a while I thought she was kidding and had a wicked sense of humor, says one acquaintance. (laughs) Then I realized she was playing it straight. She means this stuff, and on it goes. Okay. So how do I know what's going on in my heart, in all seriousness? One way I know what's going on in my heart is how I deal with people. And how I deal with people who annoy me or disagree with me. And I will tell you, as I examine my heart, as it relates to how I respond to people who disagree or annoy, I have much work to be done in becoming like Jesus. What we want most must be cultivated. And so this is what verse 16 says. Back to verse 16. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what's the antidote then to the attitudes and the words and the actions that reflect the sinful desires of the flesh? What's the antidote, the answer to that? It is to walk by the Spirit, verse 16. If you do that, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So how do I walk in the Spirit? How do I desire what the Spirit desires? What is it that the Spirit desires, dear friends? Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse, John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus was telling his first followers, I'm going to leave you, but when I leave you, I'm going to send another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will testify about me. He will glorify me. This is why I said last week, sinful desires are misdirected desires. Directed away from God. Away from others. And toward myself. So what should we do? Let me give you some practical items for each of us and then we'll be done. In general, what should we do? What we must do, first of all, is realize that we are much worse than we think. Lose the idea, dear friend, that we've arrived. (laughs) There is work that needs to be done in my heart and your heart. Every moment of every day, we are much worse than we think. We're much worse than we think. By the way, we're not much worse than what everybody else thinks. Everybody else knows the deal. But we're much worse than we think. We are all really huge sacks of sin. Secondly, see your reactions as windows into your heart. When I react to people and I react to circumstances, that is a window into my heart. And then, thirdly, hold yourself accountable for those desires that are revealed in those moments. Don't blow it off. Don't say it was an aberration. That's me and that's my heart speaking and doing and thinking. And fourthly, 
thank and praise Jesus that he has saved you from the power and penalty of sin and that he is currently saving you and me from ourselves. You see, given that we are huge sacks of sin, if Jesus doesn't rescue us, we're hopeless. Am I right? So we thank and praise Jesus. Now that's what we do in general. What do we do in particular? Verse 24 says this, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That verse is saying, remember whose we are and the freedom and honesty that that brings us. We belong to Christ Jesus. And therefore, because Jesus has died for me, I can be honest about who I am. He's covered my sin so I can admit my sin. Remember whose we are and the freedom for honesty that that brings. And then verse 24 says, Crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. That is, mortify, kill sin at its very root. Don't be satisfied with fruit stapling. Behavioral change. We want to see change at the motivational level. What is motivating me? Glory for God? Love for others? Or looking out for number one? And last, as you do that, as I do that, look for patterns in your life. Every one of us has characteristic patterns of the kinds of sinful drives and desires that we have that show up in our relationships and in our circumstances. We'll begin to see those and then we can hone in on God's remedy for those as given to us in Scripture. I say in your take-home truth, the bottom of your outline, the gospel transforms our desires, transforms our desires, and determines our actions. It's by the gospel of grace and by the gospel of grace alone that we're changed from the inside out. Let's bow together. Father, this is a convicting passage for me and I assume for your people who, because we have your spirit, want to please you with our lives. We want our desires to align with the desires of God the Holy Spirit. And yet, Lord, your word warns us over and over of the struggle and warns us of the consequences of giving in to that struggle and the sin, the desires of the flesh. So, Lord, we thank you that you're honest with us, that your word is like a knife that penetrates deep within our hearts. I pray, Lord, that my brothers and sisters who are here have been attentive with hearts that are open, desiring to change so that we can be like Jesus. I pray, Lord, that in just the few examples we're either able to give, that we see ourselves in our characteristic lusts and idols, and that, Lord, we want to eschew them from our lives. We want, to, we want to mortify them. We want to kill them. Lord, we need your help. And so we ask you for this to be a first step in a new direction for many of us. 
but not one step, but a first step of many throughout our lives where we're killing the flesh, where we're seeing the idols that crop up in our hearts by our words and our attitudes and our actions. And we're desiring to please you by gratifying not the flesh, but living according to the Spirit. As a result, may we please you individually. May this church be a unique place a distinctive place, a light in darkness because people live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. May you receive glory as a result. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.